Good evening. Tonight is Thursday night, January 21st, 2021. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. I am grateful to you for joining us and allowing us to be able to connect in this way to study the Parsha and to get ready for Shabbos. I have three pieces that I'd like to share with you tonight. There is a detail in the narrative of our Parsha, the Parsha of Bo, um, it's a little embarrassing. The Torah says, as the Jewish people are coming to the time when it's to be ready to leave Egypt, as the plagues are coming to their conclusion, the exodus is imminent. Moshe says, God says to Moshe, Daber Nabaz Neha'am, speak to the Jewish people. Vishalu Ish Me'es Re'ehu, Vishah Me'es Re'usa, every man should ask from his Egyptian friend, and every woman should ask from her Egyptian friend. Give me some gold and give me some silver. I mean, hold on a second. I thought this was about leaving Egypt and freedom and getting the Torah and going to Israel. How did this get to be about money? It's kind of like, it makes me a little embarrassed. It's almost like, an embarrassing stereotype of Jews who care about money. I used to know an old Jewish man. And this man used to say the three most important words. Do you know what the three most important words are? Gelt, gelt, and cash. It's a certain type. I find that embarrassing. And by the way, the Pusik that I quoted, the difficulty is not just the embarrassment over why do we care about money and gold and silver all of a sudden, but listen to the Pusik before and after. By Yomer Hashem El Moshe. God says to Moshe, Od nega echad avi alparo one more plague is left. Unfortunately, we know what that is, makas pechoros, the death of the firstborn. After that happens, they're going to send you out of Egypt. Daber so tell the Jewish people that each person should ask their friend to give them some gold and some silver. Number three, And God will create goodwill among the Egyptians for Israel and they're going to agree. They're going to give gold and silver. First of all, 
Since when did any Jew in Egypt have Re'ehu, a friend? What do you mean? The men asked your friends and the women asked your friends. What friends? What do you mean friends? They're slaves. They were mistreated. They were persecuted. They were beaten. They were killed. What friends did they have? And especially after the 10th plague, after what's going to happen, it's so horrible. It's even, I mean, just to think about it in human terms, it's hard to even put into words. The firstborn, Nebuch, God forbid, the firstborn child of every single family is going to Nebuch to pass away. It's, and it's at that moment, the Egyptians are going to be so happy with the Jews. They're going to give them gold and silver. Besides that, they didn't need it. What were they going to do with this gold and silver? Once they got to the desert, they had the man. So they had no need to buy food because the man, the manna, was food that was provided to them every day for free. They had sukkos, the dwelling places, the temporary huts that they had to live in. They didn't have to rent an apartment or buy a house. The Torah tells us later on, Their clothing did not wear out. It's like if you wear sweatshirts and sweatpants every day. You don't wear out your clothes. They didn't have to buy new clothes for the whole 40 years. Nothing wore out. And by the way, it's not like there was a Walmart on the way in the, in the desert. Where were they going to spend this money to begin with? What's the point What's the point of having money if there are no stores to buy anything and there's nothing that you need? Not only that, it got them into trouble. It got them into a lot of trouble. Because what did they actually use it for? They used it to build the golden calf. And we know how that turned out. Our rabbis in the Talmud say an amazing thing. Our rabbis in the Talmud give the backstory to how Moshe defended the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf. After all, God said, don't make graven images. 40 days later, the Jewish people had built the golden calf. You could not get a more overt, open, terrible sin than the golden calf. But Moshe defends them. And Moshe comes up with a great defense. Amr Debe Rabbi it was taught in the yeshiva of Rabbi Yamai. Here is how Moshe defended the Jewish people to God. God wanted to uh, um, eradicate the entire Jewish people, God forbid, and start over from scratch. Moshe defended them. Moshe said, you know what, God? It's not their fault that they built the golden calf. It's your fault. Rebono Shalom. Why did you have them leave Egypt with so much gold and silver and nothing to do with it? It's just sitting there. So, so they built a golden calf with the gold and the silver. If you, God, wouldn't have arranged it that they would have left with so much unnecessary gold and silver, they wouldn't have gotten into trouble. By the way, that's just an important lesson, just parenthetically. That's an important lesson because that is such a common thing. You know, we all want more money. Let me admit, I'm in that category. Everybody wants more money. Everyone feels, ah, I need a little bit more money. 
The truth is, when we get it, often, not always, often, we are less happy. And it gets us into trouble. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, the great Torah leader of the previous generation, was for a number of years a rabbi in Toronto. <clears throat> and he knew members of the Reichman family, the amazing Reichman family of Toronto and other places, fabulously wealthy, religious, amazing, upright, refined, fantastic people. One day, one of the Reichmen said to Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was the greatest, one of the greatest Torah scholars of his generation, Reichmen said to him, Rabbi, let me ask you a question. After 120 years, who's going to get more reward from God? You, for the Torah that you study and teach? Or me, for supporting you to study and teach Torah? Who's going to get the bigger reward from God? It's a good question. So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky answered, he said, Mr. Reichman, I don't know. But if you were to ask me who will have more enjoyment in this world, the answer is me. Our rabbis tell us, Ohev kesef lo yispa kesef. A person who loves Money will never be satisfied by money. Our rabbis tell us, the more possessions you have, the more worries you have. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says, I'm a simple man. I'm a poor man. I'm happy with what I have. I promise you, I am happier in this world than you are worrying about all your fortunes and making more. So they didn't need this money and it got them into trouble. And just by the way, coming back to our narrative, don't think that this was just some minor detail, just some afterthought of the narrative. Oh, by the way, Moshe says, why don't you just try to get some gold and silver on the way out? The first time God speaks to Moshe at the burning bush, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago. The first time God describes this plan to Moshe of how he is going to lead the Jewish people out of Egypt, God says to Moshe as follows, I am going to cause that just before you leave Egypt, that the people of Egypt will have goodwill towards you. When you leave Egypt, you're not going poor. Vishala, you're going to ask for gold and silver, and they're going to give it to you. Vinitsaltem es Mitzrayim. What do those words mean? The normal translation, Vinitsaltem es Mitzrayim, you will take the spoils of Egypt. So it's central to the whole narrative. Why? <clears throat> I want to share with you an approach of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It's based on two passages in the Torah. Each of these passages has a difficult question we need to ask and answer about it. 
Passage number one. This is a mitzvah in the Torah that we will learn much later in the Torah. Ki yimchar l'cha When your brother is sold to you as a servant. There's a concept called Evid Ivri. That means a person uh, owes money. They don't have any money to pay it. They are placed into indentured servitude to work off the debt. And the Torah says the maximum amount of time one can spend in this condition is up until the seventh year. This servant will work for you for six years, paying off his debt. Then, then seventh year comes, he goes free. That is, if the debt is not yet paid off, that's the maximum, that's the cap. It erases the debt after that time, and he goes free. Okay. Person had to go through a rough period paying off a debt. Being someone's servant is no fun. It's hard work. It's humiliating. It's lack of, of, of control over your life. Says the Torah. Lo sishalchenu rekam. When this servant leaves your employ, don't let him go empty-handed. Ha'anik taniklo. Give him presents. Give him gifts. Vezacharta. And remember, ki eved hayisa be'eretz mitzrayim. Because you were a servant, a slave in the land of Egypt. Al-Kain, therefore, Anochi therefore I am commanding you in this mitzvah that when you let your servant go, give him presents. So, number one, a person's been a servant for six years. It's time to go. You're going to give him a present. Is that supposed to make it up? That's supposed to make up for the loss of wages, for the humiliation, for the servitude, for the lack of, of, lack of years of freedom. What's a, what's a present going to do at the end? That's passage number one. Passage number two. Another mitzvah. This is a mitzvah that applies to everybody. Lo sesoyed mitzri. Do not hate the Egyptian. We are not allowed to hate Egyptians. Kiger hayisa be'artso, because you were a stranger in their land. What do you mean? That's the reason not to hate them? That sounds like the reason to hate them. We were strangers in their land because we were slaves. We were persecuted. We were beaten. That's a reason that we should hate them. What does the Torah mean in saying, don't hate the Egyptians? So this answer is a fundamental truth in life. A people driven by hate cannot be free. If Moshe would have taken them out with their hatred in place for all time, we, you and I, we would still be stuck in Egypt. To be free, 
You have to let go of hate. There is no other way. The Talmud says, when the kettle boils, it spills hot water over its own sides. Hatred causes more harm to the hater than it does to the hated. We don't let go of the memory. We remember every day the persecution in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt. We remember it every day and Pesach and, and, and so many times we remember. We're going to talk about this a little bit later on. Don't let go of the memory. But the purpose of the memory has got to be for our future. The purpose of our memory of what happened to us has got to be lo sonu es hager. Do not mistreat someone else. Ki gerim because you were mistreated in Egypt. The memory of the difficulty we had in Egypt, we should never forget it, but it has got to become something that allows us to move forward. Let's make sure we don't ever do that to someone else, what they did to us. Says Rabbi Sachs, memory is a moral tutorial. That's what you do with the painful memory. You use it as a moral tutorial. You use it for the future, not for hate. When the servant goes free, the master gives gifts. It doesn't compensate for everything that the servant lost during his years of servitude. But it means that the parting is with goodwill. And it is much harder to hate someone who has just given you a present. It gives freedom, freedom to the servant to build a new life not to spend the rest of it enslaved in anger over what happened. Rabbi Shlomo Karbach was once asked, he so epitomized joy and love. Someone once said to him, do you hate Hitler? Shlomo said, if I had two souls, I would devote one to hating Hitler. But since I have only one, I don't want to waste it hating. In the first conversation that God has with Moshe, God says to Moshe, you will go free. But no, you will go truly free. Free not only from servitude, but free from hatred, free from bitterness, free from being stuck in the past. You will ask for wealth, which is going to be so improbable at the moment of the greatest enmity. There should be, by all rights, such hatred at that moment. But you're going to ask and they're going to give it to you, the gold and silver? Venitzaltem es Mitzrayim. I translated before, you will take the spoils of Egypt, but that's not the literal translation. 
Vinitzaltem literally comes from the same root word Hatzala to save, to rescue. You will rescue Egypt from being the object of your hatred. Because of that improbable act of goodwill, just before you left, you will be freed from hatred. The same thing is true in our own lives. Something bad happens, someone hurts us, we remember it. Could be a relative, could be a business partner, could be someone that we thought of as a friend, we remember it. But if we allow ourselves to remain in hatred, we will remain stuck. We will remain enslaved. And that is what God is giving us by arranging for us to ask the Egyptians for their wealth. We didn't need it in order to be wealthy. We needed it in order to be free. To be free, you must let go of hate. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so there's got to be one mitzvah that goes first. There's got to be one mitzvah that is chosen to be the first mitzvah commanded by Moshe to the entire Jewish people. And that mitzvah is in our parsha. God said to Moshe and to Aaron, in the land of Egypt. What do you mean in the land of Egypt? They haven't left. Obviously, they haven't gone anywhere. Of course, they're in the land of Egypt. The exodus did not happen yet. But to emphasize, this is the first mitzvah before you leave Egypt, while you're still a slave. This is the foundation on which the exodus will occur. This is the foundation on which the Torah will be based. And this is what facilitates the transition from slavery to freedom. And that mitzvah is HaChodesh Hazeh Lochem. Rosh Chodeshim, the mitzvah to follow the cycles of the moon as our calendar. We follow a lunar calendar. We live our lives according to the lunar calendar, the cycles of the moon. I discussed the significance of this with you last week. Tonight, I want to mention a new layer, a different layer. And let's start by focusing on one apparently extraneous word in the Pasuk that I read, Lachem. HaChodesh Hazeh Lachem Rosh Chodashim. This month should be for you, should be for you. Why for you? Follow the lunar calendar. The month of Nisan is the first month of the year. What does it mean this month should be for you, the beginning? Who else is it going to be for if it's not for you? He's talking to you. So the Gemara explains, the Talmud explains, that the new Jewish month does not begin automatically 
at the astronomic beginning of the lunar cycle. Rather, Hachodesh Hazeh Lachem Rosh Chodashim. The new month is up to you to designate. You, we, the Jewish people, we have the responsibility to proclaim the beginning of each Jewish month. The Talmud explains the new month is established not on the basis of the actual astronomical calculations of the beginning of the new cycle. That is only a guideline. <coughs> the Talmud explains that the Sanhedrin, the great court in Jerusalem, is not constrained by the position of the moon in establishing which day is Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month, which will then determine which day is Pesach, which day is Shavuos, etc. In, in every month. The rabbis of the Sanhedrin actually have a certain amount of latitude to set the date as they wish, as they feel is best. The new month is established, says God, when you, the Jewish people, say it's established. And the Mishnah describes the uh, procedure. Witnesses would come to the court, to the Sanhedrin. They would testify that they saw the new moon in the sky the night before. This is where it was. This is what it looked like. The judges would examine, cross-examine the witnesses. They would confer, they would discuss, and then they would come to a decision. And then, as the Mishnah says, Rosh Bezdin Omar, the head of the court, the chief justice of the Sanhedrin, would stand up and would say, Makurash, it is sanctified. V'chal ha'am onin acharav, and all of the people that were in the courthouse would answer and say, Makurash, Makurash. Sanctified, sanctified. That's what makes it Rosh Kodesh. Not what the moon is doing. What the Sanhedrin says, what the rabbis say. In other words, with this mitzvah, God says to us, the Jewish people, I, God, will follow your decision. I will follow, God says, your calendar. I will judge the world, God says, on the day that you say it's Rosh Hashanah. I will forgive on the day that you say it's Yom Kippur. Shabbos is different. Shabbos follows the solar system. God sets Shabbos every seventh day. Shabbos starts automatically. It does not require human intervention. In the prayer that we say on Shabbos, in the Amidah, and in the Kiddush, we have a bracha at the end of the middle section. And we say, Baruch Ato Hashem, blessed are you God, Mekadesh HaShabbos. God, you sanctified Shabbos. We've got nothing to do with it. It's the movement of the sun seven times, every seven times. It's Shabbos. Comes Friday night, it gets dark at Shabbos. That's God. Yom Tov is different based on Rosh Chodesh, right? Because Yom Tov follows the lunar cycle. We set the date. God follows 
our lead. The bracha that we say in our prayer and in our Kiddush is different. Baruch Hashem, blessed be God, Mekadesh Yisrael v'hazmanim. Mekadesh Yisrael, in other words, God sanctifies Israel. And Israel sanctifies the day as a holiday. The first mitzvah given to the Jewish people while still slaves in Egypt contains the message that God says to us, you are no longer slaves. You are princes and princesses. God says to us, you are my partner in ordering the universe. You abide by my decisions, God says, and I will abide by yours. When we attend shul, hopefully we'll be back soon. On the Shabbos before Rosh Kodesh, we say the Birchas HaKodesh, the blessing for the new month. We pray that the coming month will be filled with health and happiness, free of sin, the other things we pray for. And we announce the molad. The molad is the actual moment of the astronomical new lunar cycle. And we announce it. Wednesday, uh, this hour and this many minutes and this many seconds. We announce the molad. Why do we do that? And you'll notice it's quite common that a person may think we announce the molad is, let's say, Wednesday afternoon and Rosh Chodesh is Thursday. So is, doesn't the, shouldn't the molad, whatever it means, shouldn't it be the same day as Rosh Chodesh? And what's the point of announcing it if it's not the same day as what Rosh Chodesh is? What's the point? The point is we announce the molad in order to demonstrate we are not required to follow the astronomical calculation. It's a guideline, but the calendar follows human witnesses, human judges, human proclamation. We are in charge. Hachodesh Hazer Lachem. This mitzvah is given in order for us to be in charge. There is a fundamental question that is asked in every place and in every time about every religion, about the nature of religion itself. Does religion make me smaller or greater? Is religion the opium of the masses, a useful device for keeping great numbers of people passively in line like sheep? Is man weak, doomed, sinful, in need of saving? Or does religion magnify our self-esteem? Is man magnificent, transcendent? Does religion place us at the very apex of the universe? To a large extent, expressed in many different issues, 
Judaism differs from the other major religions of the world in advocating the latter, the greatness of man. And the source of that teaching is Rosh Chodesh, the Jewish calendar. Its mechanism places man at the very top of creation, reflected in the words of Tehillim Psalms, Aniamarti, God says, Elohim Atem, I, God says, you are like princes and princesses, only I, God, am higher than you. Years ago, I heard this story. There was a Jew many years ago. His name was Isaac. Isaac, the son of Yechezkel. He lived in Krakow and he had a dream. He had a dream that he should go to Prague and there's a bridge in Prague. And underneath the bridge, there is a treasure that is buried and he should go to Prague and dig up that treasure. And the dream repeated itself and repeated itself. And finally he decided, I'm going to follow that dream. So he traveled to Prague. But when he got to Prague and he found the bridge of his dream, the bridge was guarded by soldiers and he dared not dig for the treasure his dream had promised him. One day, the captain of the guard asked him, what are you doing here, standing here day after day on this bridge? What are you doing here? So Isaac said to him, I'm following the instructions of a dream that I had. So the guard says to him, you mean to tell me that because you had a dream, you traveled from Krakow to Prague? I had a dream. I had a dream that in Krakow, there's some Jew named Isaac and underneath his oven in his hut, there's a treasure that is buried there. You think I'm crazy enough to go follow some ridiculous dream? Isaac went home, dug in his hut, and he found the treasure. The treasure is within us. We all search for treasure. And often we look for it far away in exotic places, but it's right here. We are the treasure. That's the message God chooses for the first mitzvah addressed to the Jewish people. Let me just address what's in the chat. It's not the first mitzvah listed in the Torah. It's the first mitzvah where it is addressed to the entire Jewish people while they were still slaves in Egypt. And that message remains today at the heart of what it means to be a Jew. Let me share one last piece. This is a, a broader view of this section of the Torah. How are we to understand why it is 
that the narrative of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, is so pervasive in our Judaism. Every day, every single Jew deals with it. More than any other event, including creation, including Sinai, in our daily prayer, Exodus from Egypt is mentioned numerous times. Benching, grace after meals, Exodus from Egypt. Every single holiday, including Shabbos, Zecher Liyitzias Mitzrayim, we remember going out of Egypt. Many of the mitzvahs, the mitzvah of mezuzah, the mitzvah of tefillin, the mitzvah of pigyon aben, redemption of the firstborn, and on and on and on and on. One could almost call Judaism the religion of Exodus. So here's an approach. And I ask you to consider this approach. And if you find it meaningful, to try to integrate it into your life. There is a central question every one of us asks about God. This question has existed since creation. Woody Allen put it this way. He once said he wished he could be more clear in his belief in God. If only God would give me some clear sign, like making a large deposit in my bank account. Is God aware of us? Is he involved in our lives? Does he really see me, care about me, react to me? So let's start with this passage. Not in our Parsha, we'll come to it in a couple of weeks. Perhaps the most famous passage in the world where God introduces himself to the Jewish people and to all of humanity for all time. The Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments. God spoke all of these words as follows. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Let's ask two questions. Number one, God is speaking to the entire assembled Jewish people. Why does God address them in the singular? Anochi Hashem Elokecha, your God, but singular, speaking to one individual. Asher who took you, single, one person, you as an individual. He's speaking to a multitude of people. Why doesn't it say, I am the God of all of you who took all of you out of Egypt. That would make more grammatical sense. Number two, why does God choose to introduce himself at this crucial moment as the God who took you out of Egypt and not the God who created heaven and earth? Why isn't the God who created heaven and earth a better job title for God than the God who took you out of Egypt? So there are a number of answers to these questions. What I want to share with you is partially based on the approach of the Ramban Nachmanides. I've shared this with some of you before. 
Let's say you want to make something. You want to create something. There are two types of creation. For example, I can create a chair. I can make a chair. When I finish the chair, I have no further connection to that chair. It exists without me. I may have no plan for what will happen to it. It doesn't need me or my involvement. It exists independently as soon as I finish making it. That's one kind of creation. Or I can create a facial expression, a smile. Now, this kind of creation requires my ongoing will, my ongoing act of creating it, because my smile remains only as long as I will to continue smiling. When I stop willing to smile, the creation is gone. Bereshis Barolakim. Let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. When God created heaven and earth, what kind of creation did God create? Did God create heaven and earth like a chair? Meaning God created it, set it in motion, and now it just runs by itself. Or, when God created heaven and earth, did God create it like a smile? Where... It requires God's ongoing involvement and will in order for it to stay in existence. And that question is unanswered until the exodus from Egypt. Listen to how the Torah, 40 years later, after the exodus, describes this event in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. The Torah says in Parshas Veschanan, I ask you, please, ask about the days of old. Ask about what happened 40 years ago in the exodus from Egypt. Because remember, 40 years later, it's a new generation. Ask your parents, ask your grandparents, what was it like? Did it ever happen? Haniya kadavar Oh, Hanishma Kamo, did it ever happen that an entire people heard God speak from the mountain of Sinai? Did that ever happen in the world? Oh, or did it ever happen that God descended into history and extracted one people from another people? Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, is where God openly and publicly descends into and redirects history, where God discerns and distinguishes between one person and another. This is the answer to the question of creation. As we say in our daily prayers, God is Hamachadesh Betuvo, Bechal Yom Tamid, God is one who renews in his goodness the act of creation 
at every moment on an ongoing basis. Creation is an ongoing process of God where God remains involved and aware and responsive. History is a reflection somehow of God's plan, never coincidence. And that's why God introduces himself to us, because that tells us what it means to call God a creator. It means a creator who remains involved, who has a personal connection. And notice, by the way, on Shabbos, when we say the Kiddush on Friday night, Shabbos, which celebrates creation of heaven and earth. And we say the words, a remembrance of the creation of the world. We also say the phrase, a remembrance of the Exodus, because it is only once we come to the Exodus that we understand fully what we mean by saying, God created heaven and earth. That's the completion of the definition. And that's why it's written in the singular. Says the Ramban, Lahazir, this comes to warn us, that every individual will be held accountable for fulfilling God's commandments. God speaks directly to every one of us as individuals. God has a direct, ongoing, unique, personal relationship with every one of us. God hears and responds and speaks to every one of us. And this explains a curious fact. What's the name of the holiday? that comes from the narrative of our Parsha. We call it Pesach. Pesach. If I was writing it, I would have thought of a different name. Chag HaYetziah, the holiday of Exodus. Chag HaCherus, the holiday of freedom, maybe. Why is the holiday called Pesach? What does that mean, Pesach? Well, it's based on Tupsukim and Anaparsha. The Torah says as follows. Before the Jews left, God had told Moshe to command them a very curious thing. God told Moshe to command the Jewish people that they were to take the blood from the animal that they had slaughtered for the carbon Pesach and to place the blood on the doorpost of their home. Why put blood on the doorpost to their home? The blood will be a sign on the houses where you are located. When I, on the night of Exodus, when I, God, come through Egypt to take you out of Egypt, but before that happens, to smite the firstborn, when I come to a house and there's a mark of blood on the door, I will pass over. That's where it comes from. 
Pesach, Pasach, I will jump over, skip over, pass over, and I will not allow any destruction to take place in the homes of the Jews that night. While I am smiting the firstborn of Egypt, that's the first Pasach. Then comes the second Pasach, also in our Parsha. And you shall say, Zevach Pesach Hulashem. This is a holiday of Pesach. Why is Pesach the name? Asher Pesach al Because God passed over, jumped over, skipped over the houses of the Jews in Egypt while smiting the homes of the Egyptians, but the homes of the Jews were saved. All right. You know, it seems like a rather minor detail in the narrative. Yes, God is skipping, he's jumping, yes. I mean, but the point is we leave, right? The point is we're going out of Egypt. The point is freedom. The point is going to Sinai. The point is going to, to Israel. I don't know, jumping and not jumping and, and uh, blood and not blood. It doesn't sound like that's the main point here. Why should that be the name? No, 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 no. The essence of this holiday is to see that God discerns, that God differentiates, that God descends into history and says, this one shall live and this one shall not. Because God is there. God is involved. God relates to each individual. That's what the holiday is really about. You see this significance in another apparently minor detail of the narrative, the 10th plague. Again, so terrible, so horrible to consider the death of the firstborn. Well, it's certainly the most uh, lethal of the 10 plagues, but it's also the most significant in another way. Our rabbis tell us who was the firstborn? Our rabbis tell us on that night the firstborn of each woman died as well as the firstborn of each man. Well, the firstborn of each woman generally is known. People know when a woman gives birth. Generally, there are exceptions, okay, but generally it's not something that you can hide. But the firstborn of each man? The Talmud says there were many surprises that night in who woke up the next morning and who did not. But that's something that only God could have known. The most private secrets. Judaism is the religion of Exodus because Exodus provides us with our most basic understanding of God. Every prayer, every mitzvah, every day, we recall the Exodus to reinforce that message of our personal connection with God who is involved in my life. Many years ago, I had the privilege 
wow, it's probably almost 35 years ago, had the privilege, we were living in New Orleans, Louisiana, and the great Eli Wiesel came to visit and he spoke. I had the privilege to hear him in person. Thank God I had the privilege to hear him other times as well, but he spoke in New Orleans and he told the following story. He said there were two diners in a restaurant, each one sitting at their own table by themselves. One of the diners says to the waiter, would you please turn on the air conditioning? It's too hot in here. Five minutes later, the same diner calls the waiter over and says, now I'm too cold. Could you please turn it off? The other diner is watching this every five minutes. This first guy, it's too hot. Turn the air conditioning on. No, now it's too cold. Turn it off every five minutes. Finally, the other diner who's been quiet this whole time, he calls over the waiter and he says, how, how do you live with this guy? Every minute he's asking you for the opposite. Turn it on, turn it off, turn it on. Isn't he driving you crazy? The waiter says, there is no air conditioner. There is an air conditioner. We may not always be comfortable with the temperature. And we may not always perceive the controls working the way we think they should work, but there is an air conditioner and it is working. And that's the lesson, the lesson of Pesach. And the reason that Judaism is the religion of the Exodus. My friends, I want to wish you a great night and a fantastic Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.